0: You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, welcome, normal people, to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. And our topic today is Are There Things God Can't Do? And our guest is Jared. Tom Ord otherwise
1: known as Thomas J. Ord and that's J-A-Y Ord yes who was a professor of theology and philosophy at Northwest Nazarene University and uh, said some things that we'll we'll talk about that are maybe a little bit uh, different from what you would typically hear and he he wrote some of this you know we asked the question are there things God can't do well Tom Ord wrote a book called God Can't (laughs) so spoiler alert (laughs) there's Um, there's your answer and another one that's maybe a little more descriptive at least the title the uncontrolling love of God and so we talk a little bit about how our views of God impact how we read the Bible, especially in the ways that uh, Tom has developed his view of God. And, and of course, relying on, on years and years of Christian tradition and history, is not making this stuff out of nowhere.
0: Right. And and just living through uh, maybe some frustration or crisis of faith earlier in his life about thinking through what God is like and how the Bible, how it's oftentimes understood doesn't really help, and maybe some reasons people give for why God does certain things in the Bible, uh, he didn't find those things very satisfying. And so he just went in another direction, and he said, maybe there are some things that God just can't do. Not that he won't, right? that God, and I shouldn't say he, but th- that God can't do. And, and that right away, I, that can raise hackles, right, Jared? Because we think about God as being powerful and all-powerful. How can an all-powerful being... Not be able to able, do things, yeah. and he'll he'll get to that, but maybe there's something about God that's more fundamental than a God of power and sovereignty and that kind of thing. So. And I
1: really appreciated well, – this could have been a, a hairy episode in terms of a lot of of weighty concepts and a lot of things that I feel like Tom navigated really well in terms of being able to articulate it for everyday people, and I – I think you and I kind of fall in that camp of this isn't necessarily our world either so
0: well you know one term he said kenosis a couple of times and that's yeah, that's, that's good. maybe just just if people aren't familiar with that that's a greek word it comes from philippians chapter 2 where uh, uh, jesus emptied himself so to speak, of his divine prerogative and didn't take advantage of it. And that word kenosis refers to that. So, there are theologians who talk a lot about God's kenosis and emptying himself. Or kenotic. You he might hear it ken, that yeah, way. Yeah, kenotic, you know, the adjective. So, that's, yeah, that's that's what that's what he means by that when we get to that. Yep. So, um,
1: All right, well, let's let him get to that. Let's let him get to that. uh, I can't. Are there things God can't do?
2: (laughs) It's not just that God is inviting us to participate, inviting us to contribute, but God could just get the job done single-handedly without us if we decide not to cooperate. I'm saying God really needs our cooperation if love is to win. God really needs our cooperation to overcome evil. And that's going to feel strange to a lot of people because they kind of like a God who could you know fix things single-handedly and even if we don't cooperate
1: well it's that time folks it's time for us to talk about microdosing microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of thc that help you feel just the right amount of good
0: So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping microdose.com promo code normal people.
1: You know, some people enjoy composing their own music chord by chord and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, Tom, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, it's my pleasure to have this conversation with you guys. Yeah, great to have you here. So, well, listen, uh, Tom, why don't you just take a, a couple minutes and introduce yourself and, you know, to, to our listeners and a little bit of your spiritual biography and, you know, your career and even how you got interested in ugh, theology. I mean, most people want to do biblical studies, but when they can't hack it, they do theology. That's the way I look at it. But Jared's told me not to insult my guests. I shouldn't do that. I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) Well, I got to say, I've been thinking about God stuff since I was a little kid in church, you know, Sunday school and uh, wrestling with the big questions. Although the questions when I was younger are a little different than uh, they are today. But I was one of those people who took uh, theology seriously. I was an evangelist. I I, went in this thing really hardcore, trying to convert people, get them into heaven, that sort of thing. And then I went through a crisis of faith in college and was an atheist for a short period of time uh, because the reasons I had for believing that there was a God and evangelizing about that God, those reasons no longer made sense to me. But uh, I returned to faith based primarily on two things. One, this uh, search for meaning that I was engaged in. And secondly, these fundamental intuitions that I ought to be a loving person and that other people ought to love. And the view that there must be some kind of source for these intuitions. And that source most people call God. And so, for a while, you know, I believed in a loving God. I thought Jesus is pretty cool, and that was about the extent of my theology. But over time, I developed uh, various views and developed a kind of theology that eventually led me to grad school, to get a PhD, to begin teaching philosophy and theology, and I did so for a couple of institutions. But uh, not too long ago, I was forced out of uh, my institution for having we might say too uh, progressive of a theology mm-hmm. for uh, the president's liking.
0: Okay. Well, we'll probably get to that, you know, some of the uh, ideas that you have in your book. Just very briefly since you mentioned it, you said the crisis of faith in college and again, you know, a lot of our listeners have passed including myself and Jared we've passed through these things too. What what generated that for you in college? Well, you know,
2: I was hardcore into evangelism, and I did a lot of studying of the Bible and studying of arguments, uh, but I took this philosophy of religion course, and for the first time, I read things from really smart atheists, agnostics, those from other religious traditions— And it was really for the sake of intellectual honesty that I stopped believing in God. It wasn't like, you know, I was mad at the church or some youth pastor, had you know, abused me or whatever. It wasn't some rebellion. It was really an intellectual question and one that I kept at, which eventually brought me back to believing it was more plausible than not that there is a God. I'm not certain there is a God, but Mm -hmm. I live my life based on this plausibility that there's a God of love. coming back to a different kind of
0: God, is that fair to say?
2: I think so, yeah. It wasn't like I didn't think God was loving before, but uh, I did start rethinking some of my key views about God, and I'm sure we'll get into some of those as this interview goes on. Yeah,
1: and I I maybe want to just jump into the deep end with that a little bit, because, um, you know, Pete's been saying recently, and, and I would agree with this, that we, we keep talking about the Bible, and it seems as though many of these conversations, when we talk about how to read the Bible, really hinge on this question of what is God like? And that tends to impact, then, how we come to the Bible. So, it sounds like you've gone through some shifts of what God is like. Some of your books and writings and a lot of what you talk about has this uh, uh, perspective on God that maybe you... Uh, our listeners maybe haven't heard much about before. So, maybe can you talk about some of those key elements or shifts for you about what God is like and how that's impacted how you practice your faith?
2: Sure. Let me, let me address three issues pretty quickly. One, I used to believe the Bible had absolutely no errors because God is sovereign and God would make sure that we had a revelation of who God is that was error-free. Then I actually read the Bible, and um, (laughs) (laughs) it turns out there's lots of inconsistencies, at least, if not outright errors, and that made me question how how I should interpret the Bible, what kind of role it should play, and eventually it made me change my view of God's activity, God's power even, in the world. Secondly, um, I started wrestling with questions of creaturely freedom and God's knowledge, and so this idea that if God could somehow know the future with absolute certainty, then how am I free to actually choose to do other than what God already knows is the case? So there seemed to be an incompatibility in my way of thinking, between what we might call exhaustive divine foreknowledge and my free will. And the third big thing, and the one uh, that has I've been working on, uh, particularly in the last few books, is the problem of evil. If there is a perfectly loving God who has who is incredibly powerful, then why wouldn't this God prevent the genuine evils in my life, in the lives of my friends and family, in the lives even of those who don't like me uh, mm-hmm. more broadly? Uh, why wouldn't this God prevent those evils? And I eventually came to...
0: To believe, I had to rethink God's power. Rethink God's power. Okay, yeah. Gee, that's interesting. I mean, you know, the problem of evil has been around since, well, before the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. the ancient Babylonians wrote about since this, there was too. evil. It was ever a problem. since there was evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and when he introduced, you know, a divine being into that. I mean, well, that is the problem. That, that's why you have this problem of evil. And yeah, you know, I, I, mean, I, I remember hearing someone say a while back that, you know, when you have a pantheon of gods, when you have many gods, you can sort of chalk evil up to like the gods are warring with each other. But once yeah. you have monotheism, that's when you have a bigger <laughs> problem because why would an almighty and all-loving god, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. So mm.
2: – yeah, you know, there's, uh, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners know the New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman, who wrote a book about, well, probably 10 years ago. I think the title of the book is God's Problem. And in this particular book, he goes through the various approaches to evil in Scripture and concludes that the Bible really doesn't give a precise answer to this big question, And even is very um, biographical in saying that for him, personally, this was the reason why he could, he's he's either agnostic or atheist, but he's not the the theist that he was when uh, he was younger. And um, I I look at the Bible and see those same stories and see those same kinds of issues that Bart brings up, but I've uh, carved a different kind of answer than uh, the kind of answer or Quasi solution that others have suggested that I think is actually aligned with scripture oh. if in if interpreted or read in a particular kind of way.
1: Well, before we do that, I want to I want to back up because I want to make sure everyone under, is understanding. We've kind of thrown out some maybe philosophical concepts, and I think sure. there's a loaded term here in the problem, the problem of evil, which would be and you, you can maybe you know, pile on, but but traditionally it would have been we have three things an all powerful all knowing and all loving god and given the reality of evil it seems improbable that we could have all three of those things the the powerful the knowing and the loving and so usually, kind of in our response to this, or theologians, or i 'm thinking of Harold Kushner, you know when bad things happen to good people who kind of popularize this yeah we yeah. 're usually kind of taking out one of those things and saying, "Yeah, f- then maybe this is the response so would you is there anything else you would say to kind of set up what the problem of evil is and why it matters I think you 've
2: identified it pretty well. I think the 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 other element of this that you 're assuming that uh, when you look at the answers given by theists of various religions, but especially Christians, is the question of evil itself: Is there, are there genuine evils in the world, uh, or is everything that's painful, all suffering, actually a part of some mysterious divine plan, meant for some greater purpose, meant to teach us a lesson, meant as punishment, meant as something uh, that? means that these painful uh, events aren't really genuinely evil from God's perspective, just uh, pretty
0: difficult for us in our limited perspective. Hmm. Boy, that raises a lot of questions. <laughs> <In my laughs> so, uh, I mean, this, the, the problem of evil, I, I'd like to get into how you are approaching that and how you're handling biblical texts. Can you give us an example of maybe how something in the Bible that you might read a little bit differently than maybe like a Bart Ehrman would, would read it. And, and, and that might get us into thinking about the Bible a little bit differently than maybe we're used to. So, can you give an example?
2: Sure. Well, actually, let me start generally and then I'll go to an example. Okay. When I look at the Bible, I don't think of the Bible as a systematic theology that's coherent through and through. I think of the Bible as a collection of writings, uh, narratives, poetry, etc., that sometimes is in conflict internally. But I see over and over again themes about divine love and God's call for us to love. Uh, We might say that love is, to use the language of John Wesley, the uh, whole tenor and scope of Scripture. In other words, it's kind of the main theme. And I think it's especially witnessed to in Jesus Christ. So, when I come across stories, let's say the, uh, in the Psalms when the, the Israelites believe God wants them to bash the babies' heads against the rocks, I don't look at that and say, you know, that's really a loving thing from God's perspective. <laughs> I look at it and say, nope, that isn't loving, and those folks who thought God wanted them to do such dastardly deeds simply get God wrong. I'm willing to say some images and stories about god in scripture are incorrect and i do that based upon a broader uh, view of scripture which says that i think the majority of passages or the the broad scope of scripture points to a god of love who calls us to love who is most uh, perfectly revealed in jesus who loves also and so um i'm willing to jettison or at least think some stories And some ideas in Scripture are incorrect.
0: Okay, so before we get now into maybe some more specifics, because you raised something, I just know the question people are asking, and maybe you can riff a little bit on whether you think words like revelation or inspiration are worthwhile for talking about Scripture. Because, you know, if biblical writers get things wrong— by the way, I've said similar things, so I, you know, I've had a yes. feel But By the way, you're helping me answer the question. So, um, but how, how, do you, um, how do you articulate those things, or do you want to redefine those things, or just think of different categories entirely?
2: Yeah, I like the words revelation and inspiration. I think God inspired the biblical writers, and there's a revelation of who God is in Scripture. But often tied to those words is a particular view of God's power— which assumes that if God wanted to, God could give a crystal clear, unambiguous message that would be free from error in any sense. In other words, a particular view of divine sovereignty that I reject, so, um, when I use those terms, I mean them seriously, but I'm rejecting the idea that inspiration means that God controlled the process entirely to make sure that whatever we find on the text, which, of course, as you know, there's lots of texts, it's not just one, um, that whatever we
0: find there isn't necessarily exactly what God wanted. Okay, so, I mean, I, I think you're, you're putting your finger on something that I've heard, too, that a lot of notions of the Bible being inspired or revealed by God, it is sort of uh, God is up there and the sovereign God is dictating these things will be written. And um, am I overstating or maybe missing your point when I say that maybe you're folding terms like inspiration and revelation into this overarching theme of Scripture, which is the love of God?
2: Yeah, that's okay. a nice way to put okay. it. And since I think love is inherently uncontrolling, this revelation and inspiration can't be controlling.
0: Wow. All right. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. Safwat Marzouk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
1: You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's
0: really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way, and that's what therapy does for me.
1: So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.H.E.L.P.com/BNP. So, and I, I think that just illustrates the the point beautifully we were making earlier, where how our, we read the Bible is influenced and impacted by what we think God is like. So, if God is in, yes. inherently uncontrolling, then whatever we mean by revelation and inspiration needs to have that uh, view in mind as well.
2: That's right. And, and And I even go further on this revelation, inspiration issue to distinguish my view from some other views you've probably heard. Other views which says, you know, God could have given a perfect message and made sure it was, you know, put on paper and transmitted throughout the generations. Uh, God could have done that, but God accommodated to the people in their time. They didn't know any better, and God, you know, decided, well, I'm not going to fix this those kind of views typically assume God has the kind of power to give an inerrant message about who God is, but God decided for whatever reason not to give that, that clear message and accommodate it to their ignorance or their views of the time. I go so far as to say God simply couldn't have given a clear message because to do so, God would have to control the message and the messengers, and I don't think God can control. All right, so God can't do
0: things. Thanks for being our guest today, Tom. I think we're <laughs> yeah. we're done with this episode. We have our we
1: have our tweetable quote. Our I'm watching our graph it.
0: go down in terms of people. Down. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, so obviously, I, I mean, I think I get what you're saying. Flesh that out a little bit more. That God, sure, God. Can't communicate in an infallible way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I am saying. Flesh that that out a little bit more.
2: So, I think God is constantly communicating. God is constantly acting, calling, inspiring, empowering. This is not a God of deism. (laughs) This is a God who's always active all the time and always communicating. But, I don't think this communication is single-handedly imposed upon the world and that God has the kind of capacities to make sure we get it right every time. There's always some kind of creaturely cooperation that's necessary, and even when cooperation is there, that doesn't guarantee that humans get everything perfect.
0: So, this is all relational. Yes, to the core. Which is love. Yeah. Yes, and… You're sort of blowing my mind here, Tom, but that's uh, right. No.
2: I mean, (laughs) in some ways, this shouldn't be too shocking to your listeners, because if they grant that the Bible at least has inconsistencies, if not contradictions… And if they also still want to think God had something to do with it, then they have to ask the question well, why wouldn't a loving and powerful God make sure we got it right (laughs) and make sure there were no inconsistencies? And I'm saying, well, maybe we need to give up on the idea that God can control in that kind of way. Well, I
1: think the flip side, and I want to hear what maybe some people you've interacted with have, have said and how you've responded, because, you know, in the way I think about it i'm I'm often thinking of the flip side of power, which we I think recently in our culture, with the politics and other things, we think of power negatively. But the flip side of that is power also can bring comfort so we're we're losing something by saying that God is uncontrolling as well because if God's not able to manipulate the situation in my favor and I put my trust in God's ability to do that. Um, then I feel like I'm maybe floating and what I would maybe call kind of Jean-Paul Sartre the the terrible freedom is the sense now of where I have to step up and cooperate and collaborate and be active in this process. Yeah. So, do you run into that with people who are not always celebrating this uncontrolling God, but there's a, a loss or a grief there too?
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, it was John Calvin who called his view of predestination a comforting doctrine and I think some people who go through difficulties uh, you know, in their own lives uh, find some comfort in thinking that despite the garbage and the pain and the suffering they've gone through, that in some mysterious way, God is still in control. But lots of other people, and I get letters from these people just about every week, see that same God and say, that gives me no comfort at all to think that God either caused or even allowed the horrible things that have happened to me and others. So um, it, it, there is an interesting uh, issue here in terms of what's comforting and what's not to, to various people.
1: Well, and it, for me, what it does is it, it helps me practically to when I talk to people about the Bible, that it's important to recognize you are an active participant in this process, and our community yeah. of faith are active participants, and it's not a passive – I think of, you know, kind of will of God theology that I would have grown up with where our only job, sort of like Indiana Jones with the invisible path, is to like throw some dirt on it and maybe so we can kind of see this path that God has designed for us, but if we're not careful, we're going to miss it. And uh, what I hear you saying is when it comes to reading our scriptures and enacting our faith, it's a much more participatory process, which does come with some risk, but it's also really, I think, empowering.
2: That's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm even going further than many people would say, would go, who are into some kind of relational or participatory theology. I'm saying it's not just that God is inviting us to participate, inviting us to contribute but God could just get the job done single-handedly without us if we decide not to cooperate. I'm saying God really needs our cooperation if love is to win. God really needs our cooperation to overcome evil. And that's going to feel strange to a lot of people because they kind of like a God who could, you know, fix
3: things single-handedly and even if we don't cooperate. Hey everyone, my name is Ted Cole from Erie, Pennsylvania, and I'm part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a thanks for your support, there are lots of videos from Pete and Jared, a discussion group, and other rewards. So, check it out at patreon.com write slash the bible for normal people one thing i appreciate about being part of the patreon group is the opportunity to discuss theological issues in a safe place so if you've gotten something from this free podcast please do consider supporting pete and jared at patreon.com right slash the bible for normal people if you're not able to support the show financially don't worry You can go to iTunes, and there you can rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who truly helped the podcast improve and make it what it is today. So our thanks to Liston Rice, Bonnie Lewis, Fred Anderson, Travis Jance, Erwin DeVries, Ken Cruz, Jarden Wood, Paul Mark. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. And now back to the podcast.
0: Well, let me try to act like a theologian for a second here. All right. um, are you saying – I, I want to understand what you're saying. Are you saying that God in God's essence needs us or that God has set up the universe in such a way that we get to participate?
2: I'm saying that God doesn't need us for God to exist. God exists necessarily, uh, to use classical language, but – in order for god to get the kind of outcomes consequences results that god wants and given that those results are always framed in terms of love god really needs our loving cooperation
0: because love involves risk and yes. for god to love he god can't be in god can't control us exactly okay. yeah hmm. the way i put it technically
2: is this Love is inherently uncontrolling, and love comes logically first in God's nature, which means that God can't choose not to love. God can't choose to control. It's God's very nature to love in an uncontrolling way. Hmm. Okay. And, and
1: and that's hmm. inherently relational as well, because that's built that's into right. the definition of love. That's right.
0: Yeah. Very relational. So, I don't want to get into hyperspeed here, but let's see where this goes. Um, <laughs> okay. So, God's judgment is mm. one that you would feel is ultimately redemptive for all creation, for all people? Yeah. I'm, I'm asking yeah. you the hell question. Oh, gotcha. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, so, oh that. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, because, you know, let's say an eternal punishment or at least maybe annihilation – of creatures, I think people would say, is, is doesn't seem to come from love, but from maybe retribution.
2: That's right, yeah. So, I don't believe in the common, or, or I almost said traditional, but I don't think yeah, traditional yeah, is traditional, the right yeah. word. Yeah. The popular, the popular view of hell. I also don't like the common view of annihilation, because I think it presupposes that God sort of gives up on some people, that God says, you know... That Pete, he's been evil for 80 years, and he's <laughs> there's no way he's redeemable, and yeah. so, therefore, he's going to get annihilated. That is a true story. Um, you've been way. talking to people.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, I think, I, I actually have a view of this that I call a relentless love eschatology that says that God never gives up in this life or the next. God never sends people to hell, but... There are natural negative consequences that come from saying no to love in this life and the next, and so it's not like uh, God's. It's not the uh, maybe what we might call a classical universalist uh, view, which says, you know, God says, "Oli Ali, income free," and then everybody goes to heaven even if they don't want to be there. This is a God who always invites, always calls, never gives up, but we always have the free choice in this life and the next.
0: To say no to that invitation—that's hmm, not very evangelical. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'm chuckling too, but I'm just—I'm thinking of—of of, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a different way of picturing God for I think a lot of people who have been raised in, let's say, the Western evangelical world. Yeah, right. Because th- this seems to be giving something up of yeah, God that's yeah. really cherished. But I guess you would say you're not really giving something up as much as gaining something.
2: I think so. Another way I'd say it is this. What if we took the steadfast love of God as our primary starting point? The love that is everlasting, the love that never gives up, the love that never forces its own way, all biblical phrases. What if we kept that at the very center and thought about theology including what happens after we die in light of that idea we might come to some kind of view similar to the one i've tried to propose here
1: so if i want to come back to this notion that i think comes from the bible itself around justice and you know when we talk about mm. some of these uh, concepts i keep coming back to how does love and justice interact when we have, you know, the the especially the prophets and these, these notions of God is just, um, how does that, because that's one of the questions I think that comes up for people is, it's all fine and good to talk about love, but how does our concept of love get shaped by the idea of justice?
2: Yeah, so, you know, justice means many different things. And one of the common ways to distinguish between two of the major ways to think about justice is to talk about justice as retribution, which is, you know, it's the divine discipline, God kicking your butt or whatever for doing something wrong, and justice as distributive and reconciling, which is the idea that we want to try to make sure people have equal access to what's good and that any kind of negative consequences that come about are uh, consequences that God tries to use to reconcile us in love to a right relationship. The view I'm proposing rejects the retribution model. It rejects the idea that God is a divine spanking machine that, uh, you know, takes you out to the backwoods if you sinned. But it doesn't give up on the notion that there is real, natural, negative consequences for sin So, it isn't, you know, this uh, some sort of extreme relativism, God is just uh, doing nothing and anything we do has no consequences. I I retain that uh, aspect.
1: So, then when you read the Bible, because there, if you, you know, reading, say, Deuteronomy, there seems to be this retributive sense of if you do these things, you're blessed, if you do these things, you're cursed. Would you say that's talking about natural consequences, or would that be one of those areas where you say they just got God wrong in that sense?
2: Yeah, I would say natural consequences. So, you know, I think uh, almost the vast majority of passages along those lines, I can affirm, I can say, look, you know, there's abundant life to be had when we follow God's leading to love, It doesn't mean that everything turns out rosy all the time because we also live in a world in which others don't love, and we sometimes uh, reap the natural negative consequences of their lack of love. But there is joy, there is abundant life in responding to God's call to love, and that's what those passages are speaking of.
0: Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin-D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin-D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
1: We got our bushes in
0: That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply.
1: What would they have conceived, though, of love? Because it seems like in the context, the the framing of what love is in that context is to... Follow the the covenant, obey um, those those laws, which for us would yeah. seem strange. Like I don't think of not wearing mixed cloth clothing as a form of love today. Um, so is that you know how does how does the law and following those covenant commands fit into that?
2: Yeah, you know some of them might be set aside in my scheme, but probably a better way to think of them is that. What is loving is partly contingent on the context and who's involved. You know, uh, maybe it is the case in some context that loving and or acting in some ways is loving, but other ways is not. But in other context that changes. Mm. It's also the case, I think, that we as individuals and as society are consistently learning what love requires, given where we're at in our times. You know, today. I think a lot of us believe that love requires that we care for the planet in a
0: particular way that would have probably not crossed the minds of most people a hundred years ago. And, and that's, uh, that. let's say, increased consciousness is a work of the Spirit? I think so, yeah. Okay, yeah. Which goes beyond the Bible. does, yeah. Uh, yeah. I th- yeah I, I'm, I'm one of those people that doesn't think that the Bible actually advocates earth care.
2: Yeah, I think it's pretty hard to make that argument. I mean. Yeah,
0: yeah, but but I think it's right and I I think God cares that we do that. But that's I don't really yeah, get that from the Bible. So okay, um why did Jesus die? I mean, let's can we get the whole cross <laughs> thing into this here? cuz you know, I've got like 75,000 questions right now, but
1: I'm glad I'm glad he's just lobbing you the softball yeah. questions tonight.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's actually a, an issue my Christology is one that I'm working on yeah. at the time, so I don't have a full answer for you. But I can at least say the following. Um, Christ's death is a revelation that God is one who suffers. Christ's death is a result of uh, rebellion of people who uh, act contrary to God's call to love. I'm not a person who thinks that God predestined and predetermined the death of Jesus before the foundations of the world. I do, however, think that God had in mind from all eternity that we ought to live a life of love and god could see that someone who loved perfectly was probably going to meet up with some pretty stiff opposition. Mm-hmm. So, these kinds of things are in my mind as i i work through my particular christology
0: and and what the death of jesus is all about. And you know, i i'm just to push that a little bit cuz i i'm with you that i don't i mean, who has christology worked out? You know what i mean? Yeah. It's just when you think, and th- even things like, you know, why did jesus die is
1: not doesn't even seem like Paul has it. Yeah, it's just out. that's not the easiest question oh, to answer. Good point.
0: But I mean, yeah. how, something like, and I'm just riffing here, the whole insistence that blood is necessary. Might that be the perception on the part of New Testament writers?
2: Oh, I think that's right. Okay, I mean, yeah. given, I mean, you know, the Bible better than I do, but given what Old Testament writers are saying, it's quote very natural for New Testament writers to
0: have that view in mind. Because of their Jewish tradition, their heritage, which it's almost like it's the only language they have to describe it. But I mean, I I can hear the pushback already, and and I would respect the pushback, that this this has been part of how the Christian story has always been told. So, the question then becomes, does – well, there hasn't been one way the Christian story's been told about the cross, but basically blood's been important, and that raises the issue of whether theology keeps moving and progressing and changing. It does. You know?
2: I think I think there's very strong evidence that it does. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, the Bible has changed, although there's various versions of the Bible and interpretations and all that. but. Uh, The way we have interpreted the Bible historically has definitely changed. And, you know, you're you're talking to a guy who's written a book that says God can't. So that that means I'm a person who thinks that there might be some better ways to think about God's power than at least have been in the majority opinion. So I'm I'm banking on the idea that there are better ways to think about God than maybe have at least dominated in the
0: Christian tradition. Just a quick thought here, Tom. Do not go back to evangelism because you'd really be bad at it. I'm just thinking, okay, it's not going to work. Door to door, door to door, doing this stuff. I mean, you know, there's no pamphlet. You, well, you know, you know, know check track you can give them. There's no pamphlet, nothing. I mean, just. I know you're joking, yeah. <laughs> but the truth
2: is, I get tons of notes from people who say. You know, your way of thinking about God allows me to believe in Just God again. again. Yes. I mean, it is right. common. Isn't that interesting? Yes.
0: You know, and, and the thing is, you know, not to join the party here, but I get those two for different reasons at different yeah. angles. And it sort of terrifies me that I'm I'm sort of an apologist and evangelist, and I never wanted to be either of those things. And so oh, I, I am. am. There's no doubt. You're an apologist, you know, for a different way of thinking, and people are tracking with it, so.
1: All right, well, not to break up the pattern yeah. on each other's Jared, back. Jared, we'll be back to you in a minute. Can you go get some
3: Not to break up the, uh, <laughs> the Mutual self applause society here. <laughs> um,
1: but I, I did want to kind of draw us back to what we talked about at the beginning and maybe reframe it, which was to say, when we talk about the Bible, we it really can't happen how we interpret the Bible is inevitably wrapped up in what we think God is like. And yes. I would just make an extra step that I'm hearing in the theme of this conversation is, and we can't make judgments about what God is like without our own experiences. Yes. And there's a mixture, kind of an admixture of the Bible informs that, but our own experiences inform that. And so definitely that important part of our theology that has to accept and integrate that our experiences matter and they're not just a problem to be solved, but actually are perhaps a a spirit-guided process in this shift and how theology can and must and necessarily does change over the generations.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And let me give you an illustration of how my particular experience then allowed me to go back to the Bible and see it and read it differently. So Mm -hmm. I was moving to this view that, you know, maybe God can't do some things. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that's obviously not the Bible. And then I thought, well, hold on a second, let me read the Bible again. (laughs) And I started running across all kinds of interesting passages, you know, the writer of Hebrews says, God can't tell a lie. James says God can't be tempted. The psalmist says God can't grow tired. There's a really great passage in the Old Testament in which the Israelites are fighting against uh, some other nation. Maybe you know it, Pete. And they say that the other nations have these iron munitions of some sort, and therefore the Lord can't conquer them. And it's like there's all kinds of weird things going on. But this one passage especially has been important to me, and it's in Paul's letter to Timothy. Paul says... uh, when we are faithless, God is faithful because God cannot deny himself. And I have then began to work with this idea. Look, if God can't deny God's own self and God is love, God must love. And maybe this love is self-giving, others empowering, uncontrolling. And that might then become a clue on how we might rethink God's power in light of God's love. I still think God's powerful. I just don't think that God has the kind of controlling or single-handed determination that many people have thought God has. And,
0: and also that God would lay down that power. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to get into this thing you said earlier that you disagree with, and I think you're right that God just sort of accommodates to to sort of like different ways of thinking. But, you know, does God I'm, – I'm thinking here of a book that I'm trying to finish by William Placker, I think is how you pronounce it. Oh, yeah, it. yeah, my, yeah. Yeah, Narratives of a Vulnerable God, yes. which is like God is laying down the prerogatives. It's yeah. like a kenosis, like it's an emptying of, of of God's self and to be vulnerable. And that's that's the primary way, which I think is love. You I know, do that's, too. That's, a, that's a, like a primary way for God to express – God's love.
2: What makes my view different from Plackers and many other kenotic theologians is that they think that God voluntarily gives up this power as if God could have retained it, and perhaps sometimes does. My view says that God's very nature is this self-giving love. This very nature is kenotic. In fact, I call my view essential kenosis. And that means that this Uh, self-giving is, we might say, involuntary rather than voluntary. In other words, because God's very nature is self-giving love and God must be God, God can't deny himself, to quote the Apostle Paul, that means this self-giving limitation, we might say, is something God necessarily does because God is necessarily loving. Almost like a good parent. Yes, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I use the parenting analogy a lot because some people say, well, your God is not in control. That means your God's doing nothing. And I say, well, you know, a good parent is neither manipulative or absent, a good parent is influential, a good parent is there. Prodding you, calling you, even sometimes commanding you to do what is the right thing, but not trying to control you like a helicopter parent, nor also absent, never around mm.
1: excellent, well, unfortunately, Tom, we are coming to the end of our time um, I really appreciate all the, the new ways to think about the Bible and God, and there's just a lot to chew on. But before we go, is there projects you're working on or things you can point people to to learn more about some of your views?
2: Well, I think the, uh, I've written quite a few things, but the book that's probably most helpful is one that just came out in 2019, and I'm happy to say has been a, a bestseller. It has this provocative title, God Can't. How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils. And in this particular book, I lay out what I think are five aspects to uh, wrestling with the problems of suffering and evil and still believing that there is a God who does stuff and who's loving. So I would recommend that book. If you're more into the scholarly stuff, a previous book that I wrote is called The Uncontrolling Love of God that also addresses these issues.
1: But, and is there, are, there, are there ways people can find you online, too, if they want to interact with you further?
2: Definitely. I have a website that's my full name, Thomas J, J-A-Y, Ord, O-O-R-D. I'm on the various social media channels. If you'd like to uh, know more about this idea of a God who is relational and who experiences time like we do, you might check out the uh, organization called the Center for Open and Relational Theology, of which I'm a director. Um, And I love to engage with folks who have questions about uh, these uh, issues that I've been throwing at you today. Yeah, that's great.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much again, Tom, for taking some time and explaining some complicated things to us in ways that I think everybody's going to appreciate.
0: Yeah, really helpful. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Great, Tom. Thanks. All right. See you. Hey folks, thanks for listening again to another episode of the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you have a chance to check out Tom's books and uh, maybe find them online like he said.
1: And if you want to find us online you can find a lot of things on Patreon. We are still in the midst of our campaign. We are less than 100 people away from reaching our goal of 1611 patrons. So go to The Bible for Normal People uh, on Patreon. Patreon.com front slash The Bible for Normal People. Hope to see you there and we'll See you later. Yeah, we'll see you later, folks, as always. I wanted to say, check you later. Kind check of Matthew later. McConaughey, DS yeah. and Confused style. We're not that cool. Yeah. See you, folks. All right. See ya.